and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Before we go to the future, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really love called Gastropod. Gastropod is a show about food with a side of science and history, and it's really fascinating. Every episode, the co-hosts Cynthia Graber and Nicola Twilley look at the hidden history and surprising science behind a different food or farming-related topic. If their names sound familiar, that's because I had them on this show last season. They talked about calories and why you probably should stop counting them. Later this month on Gastropod, they're doing an episode on where modern restaurants come from, and one on the history of veganism and vegetarianism, and I'm sure that both of them will be super interesting. So if you want to be that person at your next dinner party who has a ton of fun facts about whatever's on the table, this is the podcast for you. You'll learn about honey and seaweed and oysters and alcohol and kombucha, all the sorts of stuff that you will be able to then talk about later and sound really smart and interesting. Who doesn't love fun facts? Nobody! So go check out Gastropod on whatever podcasting app you use. They are there. You should find them and listen. Okay, now to the future. Let's start this episode in the year 2047. Okay, welcome. This is the 1230 Agriculture Through the Ages Tour. Is everybody here for that? If you're not, let me know now, okay? Great, so let's get you comfortable in the headsets first, and then I'll explain how this will work. So in front of each of you is a headset. Go ahead and put those on. So for those of you who've never taken a VR tour before, you just place the set on the bridge of your nose and pull the strap around the back of your head. If at any point you start to feel motion sick, simply remove the headset and one of our assistants will bring you some water. Okay, so in a few minutes, the tour is gonna start. Please stay in your seats. The tour is immersive, but remember it's still virtual reality. You may be tempted to get up and walk around, but you'll end up bumping into each other, so please stay seated and keep your hands in your lap. Okay? Great. Let's get started. Welcome to the Agriculture Through the Ages Tour. I'm Sophie, and I'll be your guide. It might be hard to believe, but for most of human history, humans actually farmed the land themselves by hand. We're going to start in the year 11,500 BCE, when farmers in China began farming rice. They then moved on to soy, mung, and azuki beans. Now let's go to 13,000 BCE, when farmers in Mesopotamia domesticated pigs. All this time, humans were spending hours and hours of their days out in the fields, working the land using their own human power. But let's flash forward to the first industrial revolution. In 1720, using mostly human hands, farmers could gather 19 bushels of wheat per acre. By 1840, that number had jumped to 30. That might not seem like much compared to what our mechanical farmers can do now, but at the time, it was unprecedented. Despite a constant march in progress, humans still worked the land for centuries after that first industrial revolution. In the United States in the late 20th century, there were still 5 million people living on farms. Let's zoom in on one of those farms. This is the Lars family farm. You can see on the right, there's a dirt road which leads out to a wheat field. On the left, you see goats and pigs that they keep for the family. There's Mr. Lars now. He's off to check and see if it's the right time to harvest the wheat. You see that tractor he's driving? Soon it'll be a self-driving tractor. 
Now, of course, you would never see a human growing or producing food. It's simply not efficient or safe. But for most of our history, it was human strength that literally pulled food out of the ground. Okay, let's see how that transition happened. Let's skip ahead to the year 2525. So today's episode is about a future in which humans no longer do the farming. There are no more human people out in the fields getting their hands dirty, driving tractors, digging holes, pulling fruit off of trees, rounding up cattle. All of that is done by robots and drones and self-driving machines and all of that. And this is a future that people have been predicting at least since the 1930s. Yeah, so, you know, the earliest example uh, that I talk about is the uh, 1933-34 World's Fair, which is called the Century of Progress. That's Curtis Mares. He's a professor at UC San Diego and the author of this really interesting book called Farm Worker Futurism. That was actually the inspiration for this episode. So, you know, if anyone has ever seen, you know, images of this fair, it's really, uh, you know, very much at the center of, uh, uh, of historical images uh, about the future. So all kinds of uh, futuristic kinds of styles and images that we think of from the period really came from this World's Fair in Chicago. And, uh, you know, one of the, the main buildings there or displays was by the International Harvester Company, which of course was making uh, uh, farming uh, implements and farming technology. And, you know, really the floor of their exhibit really felt like a kind of, like the world of tomorrow exhibits at Disneyland. So at the 1933 World's Fair, there's this hall, the Farm Machinery Hall. And inside the hall, there are all kinds of farm machines. There are harvesters and threshers and cultivators and corn pickers and mowers and tractors. There's even a mechanical milking machine on display, and it's set up to milk this animatronic cow. And the cow could moo and move its tail and turn its head. It would even wink at you. The cow was even rigged up with an internal set of tubes to make milk come out to show off how the milker worked. But the, the biggest display was of a radio-controlled tractor, um, and they had this sort of a mock-up of a family farm and uh, effectively, I guess, a little robot or androidy creature who was the farmer sitting on the front porch uh, doing nothing but with his voice a recorded voice inside this little uh, uh, farmer robot. He was actually controlling uh, the tractor and making it making it move around. Now, a lot of this is kind of kitschy in the way that 1930s futurism tends to be. But Mara says that it's also important to think about what was going on at the time in the United States and with farming. So almost every kind of advance in, in agribusiness technology that you see uh, from the, the 30s through, uh, oh, through the 80s and 90s was really a response to, to labor strikes, to farm workers' strikes, and so a way to try and deal with that. In the 1930s, there was this big rise of farm workers that were migrants, and they were starting to organize and form unions. At the same time, you started to have this moral panic, particularly in California, about the influx of Mexican workers. There were all of these racist fears that white families thought their women and children might be in danger from these people who were coming to work the fields. And this tension only got worse through the 40s and 50s and 60s as workers' rights movements got stronger. So in response, some of the companies that make farming equipment developed these farm bots that they presented as mechanical alternatives to these so-called dangerous migrant men, the workers. In the 1930s, the International Harvester Company sent a robot called Harvey Harvester to a variety of state fairs. Harvey as a robot looks pretty crude today, but remember, it was the 1930s. And the idea was that this was a robot that could be controlled remotely by his master. Now, I don't think that Harvey actually worked. He sort of stood there and he would talk through a speaker, but he was outfitted with a metal sombrero. And he was often photographed looking very harmless next to pretty white 
girls. In the 1960s, Harvey got an upgrade and became Tracto the talking robot and was often photographed holding white babies. So, you know, at various times in, in U.S. history, especially in, uh, in the 30s and 40s, Mexican uh, workers were represented not only as potentially volatile, as uh, labor activists, as radicals, as, as um, uh, subversives, as potentially communists, but also represented often as, uh, as sexual threats. And so uh, having the, the farm worker bot as a substitute was potentially a, a very reassuring you know, image for a public who might be concerned about uh, agribusiness industries, bringing scary workers into their uh, neighborhoods and, and regions. And uh, so I, you know, I think it, 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 it made it fun, it made it cute. And in a way, that from our, our present perspective, it seems kind of strange and hokey. Um, and and that, that is true, but it also seems to me that Tracto isn't that far removed from um, the Terminator in the second film. When, uh, you know, <laughs> we have examples of the cuddly, happy, lovable robot who one moment was a killer but can be easily transformed into a, a, a protective parent-like figure or servant even. So often we look back at the predictions that people made in the 1930s about the future of anything and we laugh because they haven't really come to fruition. But in this case, they weren't totally off. I want to read to you from this ad from the company that was selling the radio-controlled farm at the 1934 World's Fair. It says... Will the farmer of the future be able to sit on his front porch while directing his farm work? Will it be possible to sit in an office in Chicago or New York and direct the operation of fleets of tractors throughout the world? Will it be possible by these methods to operate farm properties in both hemispheres and gather harvests in practically every month of the year? These are a few of the unanswerable questions with which the weird spectacle of a driverless yet perfectly controlled tractor excites the imagination. Well. Today, those questions are actually answerable, and the answer is yes. Farming, especially in the United States right now, is super advanced, like crazy advanced. We, I mean, every part of it is technological. There's nothing that is that technology does not play a part of in farming. That's Sarah Mock. I grew up on a farm in Wyoming, and I'm currently a farm researcher at a company called Farmers Business Network, which is basically a, a dynamic agronomic network that lets farmers share data on farming practices and products and methods uh, so that they can basically have more information to make better decisions on their farms. And Sarah says that whatever notion some of you might have about farming being this low-tech, boots-on-the-ground kind of thing... Middle-aged men, like, have dirty hands and, like, get slowly out of trucks with their dogs at dawn and walk towards a silo. <laughs> That's not really what farming is like in America, at least. Modern farmers in the United States are running incredibly high-tech operations. The, the focus has been on kind of, like... Self-driving tractors, uh, which have actually been around for a really long time, probably about since the 90s or so. So almost 30 years, uh, farmers like don't really steer tractors anymore, which is funny. They, yeah, they're all self-driving. They use satellites to like pre precisely kind of guide them through fields so that you can kind of maximize yield. And when it comes to the future of automated farming, Sarah says there are two ways things could go, big or small. Right now, farm equipment is big. You could easily walk into like a John Deere dealership and drop a million dollars on just like a tractor and a combine. Farm equipment is incredibly expensive and in that just like the sheer cost of it causes farmers to have to own a lot of land and farm a lot of land to like distribute the cost over a lot of acres. And there are companies working on making these gigantic, expensive pieces of equipment way smaller and way cheaper. The idea of like, well, what if we just make little tiny autonomous tractors that all like you would have like a, a horde or a, like a flock of 
autonomous tractors that would all farm like a very small area. And then you could like, you, you know, like when one breaks, you would fix one and, and they could each like individual little tractor would deal with a very small area of the field and be able to deliver it exactly what it needs, be that water or or nutrients or even like sunlight or shade, be able to provide that on like a very minute scale. So there's a couple companies, one of them is called Robots with a W, so it's like R-O-W-B-O-T, very clever. <laughs> Um, they are doing kind of like the the small little autonomous robots and that would be they would be entirely autonomous because they're like the size of like a dog and so that's kind of the one direction that would also involve i've heard theories about like there would be drones that's kind of one version of the no people farming future the other version is to go huge like even bigger than the current equipment so actually the usda just built for a different type of research, but I think there's been experimentations with this kind of thing on a wider scale. It's it's like a field scanner. It's literally like two football fields long, and it's this giant thing that is like suspended from a beam, and it like scans literally like plant by plant through the whole field every day. It moves up and down the field and just like scans and runs tests and evaluates what the plant needs and then can like respond to it on an individual level. And what about that 1930s ad? The command center, the farmer on his porch or in his glass house, orchestrating everything without stepping foot outside. Sarah says that that's pretty much possible. I really think it's almost possible today. There are some like crazy advanced sensors out there that can communicate directly. We I, I have actually seen some companies that build, for example, like water sensors that a farmer isn't even involved in. There's a sensor in the ground. It's connected wirelessly, like through a cell connection directly to an irrigation system. So literally the sensor detects when the water level is too low and it turns the irrigation system autom- automatically. That's like one small step of like a huge complex job, which is a farm and obviously even if there was some kind of centralized command center, you would still need things break down. You'd still need someone to like fix it unless you had a secondary like meta set of machines that were like your repair machines, I suppose. Westworld. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think we're actually like really close to something like that already. And I think we could, there's actually like a very funny, it's not funny, it's supposed to be serious, but I think it's kind of funny. John Deere video from last year that it's like a guy who like his dining room table is like a black mirror that is basically a giant iPad and he like controls his whole farm from it's like a very strange like video of like a guy waking up in the morning and then he like controls his whole farm from the kitchen table it's very strange the video she's talking about is really fascinating because it's basically exactly the same as the 1930s thing just in color with more glass screens I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes and on flashforwardpod.com so you can check it out And when we come back, we're going to go full steam into this future and talk to someone who is making it happen. Plus, you'll hear from a very special guest. But first, since we have not yet moved into a money-free future, let's do some ads so I can get paid. Okay, so this episode, we've been talking about a future in which there are no more farmers working in the fields. Everything is done by machines, is automated, maybe controlled by a person in their living room or in a big boardroom in a giant city. And most of what we've talked about so far has been based on farmers in the U.S., where we have plenty of land to work with. But some of the most highly automated farming doesn't actually come from America. It comes from places where space is really limited, and countries have to maximize their output in tiny, tiny spaces. So... Let's go to Japan and talk about lettuce. Do you think you'd be able to tell in like a blind taste test which ones were spread lettuce and which ones were from a different place? Uh, for me, I can't. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell the difference between, you know, two other types of lettuce, but I can, I'm pretty good at knowing whether or not it's uh, our lettuce or some other person's lettuce. So This is JJ Price, the global marketing manager at a company called Spread. What is the difference? Like, can you describe it to me? 
Uh, sure. Um, so I'm originally from the United States uh, on the East Coast. So as you know, most of the lettuce that's consumed on the East Coast is probably several days old and shipped from the West. So I never really had, uh, growing up, I never actually tasted, you know, what a fresh lettuce should taste like. Um, coming here, you know, I had plenty of opportunities just to taste lettuce the day it was harvested, maybe a few minutes after it was harvested. And, um, you know, it really depends on the varieties. But uh, one thing that I notice is it's the, the crispness, if it's crunchy. So in Japan, they prefer this type of fresh crunch when you bite into the lettuce. Um, and that's the first thing that I noticed. Spread grows lettuce in highly controlled and highly automated indoor farms in Japan. We're based in the city of Kyoto. The company was established in 2006. And what we do right now is we run and manage uh, plant factories, which is a form of indoor agriculture or vertical farming, uh, where we grow lettuce inside of a completely closed and controlled environment, which we can um, go on to uh, sell uh, mostly in supermarkets right now. Now, Spread is currently working on opening a second, bigger facility. This new indoor farm will be able to harvest 50,000 heads of lettuce a day, compared to the old building's 21,000 heads. And those heads of lettuce will be sold in about 2,000 supermarkets all over Japan. The new facility is bigger, but another way the company is boosting that production from 21,000 heads to 50,000 heads is by automating a lot more of the process. You might have heard about Spread. They've gotten a ton of press about this new facility. And in a lot of these stories, they claim that this new building is going to be completely run by robots, that there will be no humans involved. A lot of the headlines say this is the world's first robot-run farm. I'm doing little air finger quotes here because that's not true. There are still humans involved in planting and growing and harvesting this lettuce. So in the new facility, seeding will still be done manually. And then once the seeds have germinated and begun to uh, grow, that's when the automation kicks in, where they will be taken to the cultivation or growing areas and then transplanted. And uh, once they are reaching their final stage of production or growing, the panels will be transferred for harvesting. And then uh, once the harvesting process is finished, uh, humans come back in for the um, packaging and um, final uh, trimming, I would say. There are some advantages to cutting out the humans in the process. The most obvious one is that they don't have to pay as many people. So labor costs count for maybe 30% of our um, operation. So we wanted to try to uh, reduce those costs. With automation, we're able to, do, to reduce the cost by about 50%. But the new space can also be laid out differently because humans don't actually have to move around in certain spaces so they can use that space more efficiently. So not only are the, um, I would say, the aisles can be narrower. In the current facility, we ha I had mentioned it's four stories high. So we have actual floors built to separate the racks. So it's not just one 20-meter tall rack in the building. But using automation, we won't have to have these um, floors built in and we'll be able to just have one tall rack where we can have the robots moving up and down. So there's uh, small factors like that that actually uh, can increase the efficiency uh, quite significantly. At Spread, Total Automation, this completely robot-run farm that all of these news stories claim that they're building, that's actually not their main goal. JJ doesn't think that this future of fully automated farms is actually going to happen anytime soon. And he doesn't think that's a bad thing. I don't see uh, traditional forms of agriculture vanishing anytime soon. You know, it depends on the, the time scale here. Eventually, um, you know, things will probably be fully automated, you know, several hundred 
or a thousand years in the future. But if I look at the near future and currently in our lifetime, I still think that each form of agriculture, if it's just growing uh, outside uh, greenhouses or plant factories, I think uh, depending on the situation, uh, each form um, has its own kind of merits and demerits. So in Japan, for instance, you know, it's an island country. It's very mountainous. So there's not too much arable land. For, uh, vertical farming or plant factories has a little more value here. Um, but if you, let's say, if you're um, in a country that's very has a lot of arable land, uh, cheap labor, um, it may not make as much sense from a business standpoint to move in that direction. So I just think that plant factories are another solution to a whole lot of problems that we'll be facing in the future. So in Japan, where there's simply not a ton of farmland, this kind of approach makes sense. But remember, spread only grows lettuce. And as much as I love lettuce, I don't think we're headed towards a future where that's the only thing that we eat. A lot of crops just aren't going to work in this kind of indoor plant factory thing. And that is just crops. I mean, we haven't even talked about animals, livestock, that kind of stuff. Which means that the future is probably not just full of towers where food is grown by robots. So what does the future look like? One of the big questions people always ask about automation in any field is whether or not it's going to take all of the jobs. And it might. I mean, Spread specifically added automation to cut down on the number of people that it had to employ. But Curtis Mares, the professor we heard from at the beginning, says that history actually doesn't really bear out the idea that increased automation on farms necessarily cuts down on the number of farm workers. So between 1940 and 1982, there was a huge boom in automation in California. Um, and at the same time, the total number of farm workers in California increased 233 percent. So instead of eliminating all of the migrant workers, it actually wound up boosting the farm industry and giving them more jobs. Now, that is not to say that that is what is going to happen here, today, now, in the future. But it is a data point, and it's a data point that makes Curtis kind of skeptical about just how much today's automation is actually going to wind up eliminating farm workers. Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. You know, Ernesto Galarza talked about how the agribusiness industry that he confronted was bent on eliminating people from the workforce, and he always... I think he used that word eliminate because it sounds kind of ominous. So it's not that the workers are killed, but you just wonder, like, what, what happens to workers of color if there was this magical world uh, of automation where, where their jobs were, were no longer existent? I guess I take a slightly different tact because, uh, because with the kind of historical uh, hindsight, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical because the, the promise of automation being achieved has been such a long-standing one and, and has, never, has never worked that way. Uh, you know, I'm just skeptical that, that it would ever uh, work that way and that a world in which technology displaced workers uh, would really exist. And there's another thing standing in the way of fully automating farms, and that's farmers. Farmers love technology. They're actually often early adopters of a lot of the things that we, sort of non-farmers, are still grappling with. We are just getting excited now about self-driving cars like in the in the consumer world, but farmers have had self-driving tractors since the 90s. So they think it's like old news. But as much as farmers are bored by our conversation about self-driving cars, they also don't want to give up certain things. Actually, the biggest barrier to something like that is that farmers don't want that. Case at IH came out with a cabless tractor this year, like a tractor that it, it's entirely self-driving. There's literally not a place for a person to sit. And, you know, I think a lot of farmers were like excited about it because farmers are 
basically a lot of them love them to death, but they're like 12 year old kids who just like, like toys. <laughs> and so farmers were excited about it, but like 90% of farmers I talked to about that, their feedback was, I mean, it's a cool piece of technology, but I like driving my tractor. Like I'd, I want to do that. I don't want to sit in my office all day. If I wanted to sit in my office all day behind a computer, I would get a job in town. Like I work on a farm for a reason. So I think if anything, the biggest barrier to kind of like a fully automated command center type farm is is farmers. So the biggest barrier to command center farming is farmers. And I actually wanted to go back to someone I talked to last season. Oh, hi, Rose. How are you, honey? I'm good. How are you? Last season, I called my grandma to ask her about farming for the episode about a future in which meat is banned. And while we were talking, she actually told me some really interesting things about growing up on a dairy farm in the 1930s. Remember that animatronic cow that I told you about from the 1934 World's Fair that was showing off the fancy-schmancy milking machines? Well, my grandma didn't go to the fair, but she does remember milking machines showing up on her farm. It was all dairy farm, and it was... um Originally, we had, uh, it was, there were no, I remember when everything was milked by hand. And then, of course, the milking machines came along. I remember when all the um, the farm machinery was pulled by horses. So when the, when the <laughs> yeah. milking machines came, came in, was that like a big deal? Milking machines? Oh, yeah. There were two brands in those days. One was called Surge. They were little round brown buckets that suspended from the um, animal's uh, midsection on, on straps like a harness. And then uh, they were off the, they weren't on the, resting on the uh, cement. And then uh, the other kind my dad had were called, was called the Lavelle, and they were just a big can that sat down on the cement. So I remember the brands. And, and the, of course, and then, and then there was the advent of tractors when then the horses were, people would keep their beloved uh, horses or some of them, just because they were had to, uh, they were kind of kind of like part of the family by then. Um, but uh, most people, of course, me- mechanized because you had to to keep up. And yeah. Was that was it? Was there ever were people ever afraid that like there would just never be farmers anymore if there were so many machines that eventually it would just all be like robots or something? Um. I don't know. I think because things change. When my father started farming, it wasn't so much, it was in some ways easier, I guess, because maybe there wasn't enough, that much competition or what it was. But it seemed like if you grew something, you could sell it and you didn't seem to have to worry about making a profit or having the the cost of producing that product. Uh, be more than you're going to receive for it. And today it's a very uh, expensive business. I, I, I just have this saying, that if, uh, if there's no such, I, it goes like this, there's no such thing as a family farm unless your family leaves you one because it's just so expensive. You know, the average person can't go out and and become a farmer because the equipment is expensive, the, Everything is expensive. Um, And agriculture is being like a world of small businesses is a world that is dominated by like a technology treadmill. Where if, I mean, GPS guided tractors were novel in the early 2000s. And now if you don't have one, you're probably going out of business. Farmers are like have to be super technological, super 
kind of like forward in their thinking. Progressive farmers just always do better because, you know, price of lands, uh, price of land is high. It's it's incredibly competitive business, and yeah, they, there's just there's too much at stake. Kind of like I mentioned, like you know, if you're moving two or three million dollars worth of assets every year, you you can't afford to be left behind. They're just there. Yeah, there is an incredible amount of technology um, in agriculture already. And in some ways, Sarah says that right now, American farms might be about as automated as they're going to get. I've talked to farmers who say it would be easy, maybe not easy, but possible to farm 1,200 acres on the weekend. They farm 1,200 acres of corn and soybeans in Illinois and do it entirely around a full-time job. So it's already like pretty, you know, pretty automated. It isn't necessarily a full-time job to even farm like a pretty significant amount of land or it requires like very minimal help. I most operations I know, even large operations, I know a 5,000 acre farm in Montana that's farmed entirely by a father and son. They don't have any hired people. So it's already like a pretty, we've we really streamlined the farm in the United States. And part of that's because literally farmers just don't have the money to pay anyone. So they had to figure out how to do it on their own. And then part of that is is just that farmers could probably do less, but they they hang on to the things that they like doing. There's things about farming that they really like and they're not. And at the end of the day, the farmer is the small business owner. So they're not going to buy a piece of technology that they don't that they don't want to use. But what if we did take it further? What if we did actually replace every farmer with some kind of Android robot thing? That might not be on the horizon, but it's certainly something that science fiction has dealt with before. In Star Wars, planets like Tatooine use droids in the fields. Now, of course, Star Wars also has our farm boy hero, so it's not that there aren't farmers, there are just less of them. In William Gibson's book Neuromancer, there's a robot gardening crab thingy. And even beyond just farming and agriculture, a lot of sci-fi worlds feature the use of droids to do hard, backbreaking work. One of my favorite future of farming sci-fi pieces is actually a 2008 movie called Sleep Dealer. It's directed by Alex Rivera. The premise of the movie is that a wall has been built between the United States and Mexico, which cuts off migrant workers from entering the U.S. and doing farm work. So those workers are replaced by robots. But those robots, they're not autonomous. They're still controlled remotely by these workers who just can't cross the border to actually do the work. Here is a clip from the trailer. We build your skyscrapers, and we harvest your crops. We even protect your property. Let our robotics do your dirty work. Safe, reliable, we make America strong. So in the movie, the workers, instead of just crossing into the U.S. and going into the fields to do the work, they go into these big warehouses in Tijuana and they plug themselves into terminals where they control the robots remotely. It's a really grim movie, but it also feels very realistic to me in terms of the ways that technology and the politics of migration intersect. You can rent this movie for a couple of bucks online at sleepdealer.com, and I recommend it. It's really interesting. Let's uh, let's say that we go to this future somehow by magic or whatever it is. Everything is automated. There are no more agricultural workers. What does that look like? Like, what does that world look like? Huh. Wow. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess, uh, you know, all of the resources we have for for thinking about that, at least the speculative science fictional resources, 
say that the, the, the current world of difference and hierarchy gets reproduced in a different in a different way. So, you know, the classic in this regard is Blade Runner, where the replicants are all, uh, you know, effectively slaves. They're, um, uh, they're android slaves who have occupied low-level occupations or positions off-world. And um, uh, I think, uh, what is it, Harrison Ford or Decker's chief, and this is directly from the novel, calls the android skins or the replicant skins, which historically is a derogatory term for Mexicans. And so, you know, there is a sense in, in that film that, you know, in a world in which you have replicants or androids or robots doing a lot of work, that the kind of uh, racialized ideas and gendered ideas that had attached to manual workers of the human sort would attach to robots. So, so I guess maybe, maybe one of the, the answers is it's hard to know what that world would look like because every time we try to imagine it, it ends up looking a lot like the world we already live in. Which means... And I've always kind of wanted to say this on this show. The future is now! That's all for this episode. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. Special thanks to Brent Rose for playing our tour guide. The episode art is, as always, by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. And right now, if you go to our Facebook page and you send a message to me on Facebook, you will get a little chatbot thing. It's still very, very dumb. It's a very dumb chatbot. I'm trying to kind of rejigger this other system to be a chatbot so it doesn't work super well. But if you ask it really general questions about the future, you get some fun responses. And there are some hidden Easter eggs in there. So go play with it. I'm still working on it. Be patient. It's not the best, but uh, it's kind of fun. If you think you spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you're right, as always, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways that you can do that. You can donate in a variety of ways, and you can find out about that at flashforwardpod.com support. We have a Patreon page. You can make a one-time donation, whatever it is. It's all there. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about us. That actually helps. I say this every episode, but I promise it's true. That's all for this future. Come back next time, and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs> <laughs>